Hi, my name's Sarah, and this is a true crime pod. So, um, today I'm going to be doing a case that some of you, well, a lot of you will probably know. Um, I'd been, I wasn't sure what case to do for my first episode. <laughs> I've got two other recordings that will probably end up being um, episode two and three. Um, because I just couldn't decide. So they're, they're good cases. Um, but, but, um, I decided to pick this one as my first one. So this is the last call killer. Um, the reason, one of the reasons I picked it is we just, um, finished watching American Horror Story, the new series, and they loosely based the, um, Mai Tai killer on this killer. So let's get right into it. So... Um, I just want to say as well, I did get a lot of information from a book that I read, um, which I will put in the show notes. It's by Elon Green. Um, and I will pop, like I said, I will pop it in the notes so you can take a look at that if you want. It is, it was a really good, yeah, really interesting read. So yeah, if you want to see that, you can check it out. So, I'm going to begin May 5th, 1991. It was 10 to 3 on a Sunday afternoon. A maintenance worker found the remains of a gentleman called Peter Stickney Anderson. The maintenance worker um, used his radio to get in touch with his supervisors. He used to be an EMT, um, so an emergency medical technician, years before anyway. So he wasn't too, uh, you know, bothered by the by seeing the remains. Uh, however, later he was worried because um, it was suggested to him to take an AIDS test, um, as he he had actually transported the body to the morgue because no one else on scene could drive a truck. So that's a little bit um, unusual that he would take the body, but yeah, so he was a bit worried about that. Um, so I want to go on to the police now. So Jay Musser, I hope that's how you say the name, was a tall officer with bangs cut straight across his forehead. That Sunday afternoon, he was actually off duty. Um, he arrived at the rest area at milepost 265.2, to find his colleagues already at work. He had been a trooper for 10 years and was part-time with SWAT um, as well. Um, so he was a member of Troop J, um, which was charged with southeastern Pennsylvania's Lancaster and Chester counties. And this was his territory. This was a lonely, forgettable stretch of road. Nothing really happened here, um, you know, so the last crime that actually happened here was um, someone who was going 90 mile an hour over the, uh, 90 mile an hour over the speed limit, which, you know, it's not really breaking. Um, and that was 13 years earlier. So nothing, like I say, nothing really going on here, um, usually. So it's very unusual for um, something like this to happen. So a dead naked man with visible chest and back wounds found in a trash barrel on the turnpike 30 feet back from this road 
was a significant event. So um, Jay Musser, in seven years on the criminal unit, had only ever seen one of the body. The sight was unpleasant, to say the least. So the dead man had wounds to his chest, um, like I say, and also to his back. The, the next bit is not, well, the whole thing is obviously not pleasant, but I just want to warn you, this bit is not nice. So he had also had his penis severed and this had been shoved into his mouth. Oh, um, I can't imagine finding that um, or, or even seeing that myself. Um, so anyway, um, there was no sign of decomposition and the body had actually no personal belongings. So at first they actually didn't know that it was Peter Sidney Anderson um, because, like I say, there wasn't anything personal on him. What they did discover um, on further examination of the body was that at least the penis had actually been severed after death. So that wasn't, you know, at least the, at least Peter wasn't alive during, during that, um, which is something, obviously. Um, so they did take fingerprints, but they had little to work with. Um, due to signs of lividity um, or postmortem settling of the blood, they were led to believe that the body appeared to have been moved more than once. A lack of rigidity, often referred to as rigor mortis, meant death occurred no more than 36 hours prior to discovery. Um, so there were three bruises on the scalp, all fresh, indicating they were no more than a day old. There were similar suspicious injuries elsewhere, a particularly large bruise on the forearm, um, just below the end of the elbow and one on the shin. The stab wound in the back between the inner margin of the right shoulder blade and the spine was more consequential, but the abdomen was the area that had suffered the most trauma, uh, the most severe trauma. There was a gaping oval wound, most likely made by something sharp. Just above that was another stab wound, which was roughly a half inch in length. Um, a, medi a medical examiner observed an 11 to 5 o'clock line one, as one looks at a watch. The skin, the muscle, the amentum and the mesentery, which is the fatty sheath that holds the intestines to the body wall, um, were all perforated. These would have been the wounds that actually did um, lead to uh, the death. So the state police's fingerprint examiner had the job of testing the eight trash bags for prints um, using um, superglue. He developed 28 fingerprints and, th and three palm prints. But the fingerprints were put into the state's database, but there were no matches. So the prints were then sent to New York, uh, Virginia and New Jersey. However, nothing turned up from those either. Um, so... I just want to talk a little bit now about um, about Peter Anderson. So um, he was in Manhattan from Philadelphia attending a political fundraiser. And a year earlier, he had separated from his wife, um, with the, whom he did have children. Um, one source I saw said two children and another source said four, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, 
So they did separate because he had come out as um, as a gay man. And on May the 3rd, he went to the townhouse bar on East 58th Street, um, which was an upscale restaurant known for having a gay male clientele. He was lastly seen leaving his hotel that night, visibly intoxicated. More than a year later, in early July 1992, 57-year-old computer sales representative Thomas Mulcahy was in New York City for business. Though he lived in Massachusetts with his wife and four children, he was known to have affairs with men, according to court documents. On the night of July 8th, he was at the townhouse bar talking to a man described by a witness as about 5 foot 10, medium brown hair, average looking. They left the bar together. On July 10th, his remains were found neatly dismembered and stuffed into garbage bags and dumped at two remote highway rest stops in Ocean County, New Jersey. A medical examiner would later determine the cause of death to be multiple stab wounds to the chest and stomach. Anthony Morero, 44, was a sex worker who worked around Midtown Manhattan. He was last seen on May 6, 1993, near Port Authority bus terminal. His body parts were found again in multiple trash bags a day later alongside a rural stretch of road in Manchester town- Township in New Jersey. The medical examiner con- determined the cause of death as multiple stab wounds, according to the court documents. Um, another victim was Michael Sakara. He was 56. Um, he was also a gay man who worked as a typesetter for the New York Law Journal and lived in Manhattan. On the night of July 29th, 1993, he was seen drinking at a bar in Greenwich Village with a man he introduced his friend to as a nurse from the nearby St. Vincent's Hospital. He was seen leaving the bar and getting into a car with the man. Days later, his body parts were found carefully packed into trash bags, picked up from a rest stop in Rockland County, New York. The remains were found in three different states. The four cases shared both murder and disposal methods and the victims fit the same profile, which was middle-aged gay men. A joint task force was formed that included representatives from the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office, the New Jersey State Police, the Rockland County District Attorney's Office, the New York City Police and the Pennsylvania State Police. Saw blades and surgical gloves found with Mulcahy's remains were traced stores on Staten Island, as were the trash bags used to dispose of Marrero. After that, however, the tracks ran cold, and it would remain that way until the end of the decade. The case stayed cold until about 1999, when Margaret Mulcahy Mr Mulcahy's widow, called Lieutenant Matthew Kuhn of the New Jersey State Police for an update. The call prompted Lieutenant Kuhn to send the bags that held the bodies of Mr Mulcahy and Mr Marrero to the Toronto Police Department, where officers were using a new technique to lift fingerprints from evidence. They start rerunning the bags and they erased 33 prints, mainly from the bag with Mulcahy's personal effects and the saw, Mr Heisler, the prosecutor, said. We ran them in New Jersey and got a latent hit. The Mulcahy and Marrero prints were from the same guy. 
So Lieutenant Kuhn sent out 51 packets in 2000 with the prince and an explanation of the case to the to authorities in every state and Puerto Rico and asked them to check their databases for a match. In early 2001, nearly a decade after Mr. After Mr. Mulcahy's body was found, a call came in from Maine. Mr. Heisler, Mr. Heisler they said, we got him. Old records indicated that in 1973, when Mr. Rogers was a gra- sorry, Mr. Rogers was a graduate student at the University of Maine in Arona, he had killed his housemate with a hammer. He uh, so he actually claimed self-defense um, at the time, and he was acquitted. But New New Jersey authorities now had a name to match the prince, Richard Rogers Jr., the oldest of five children raised in Massachusetts and Florida. So on May two th- on May twenty eighth two thousand and one, Mister Rogers was arrested at Mount Sinai Hospital. When investigators searched his home at sixty two Bridge Court on Staten Island, they found a versed uh, sorry they found a bottle of versed a sedative that can be used as a dip rate drug. Rug rug fibers consistent with those found with Mister Mulcahy's body, and several photographs of unknown men on which stab wounds had been drawn, according to court documents. So at this point, I just want to um, actually go back <laughs> and we're going to go back and I just want to actually talk briefly um, about Richard Rogers Jr. So Richard Westhall Rogers Jr. was born June 16th, 1950. He was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It was the, he was the eldest of five children, raised by his father, a lobsterman, and his mother, a telephone worker. In the late 1950s, Roger, Rogers and his family relocated to Florida so his father could work um, a higher-paying sheet metal manufacturing job. As an adolescent, Rogers was skinny and timid. Um, this, along with his effeminate personality and high-pitched voice, which, which again... I do listen to a podcast and they always say, you know, I feel sorry for the child, not the adult, because I do feel sorry for him because um, he was bullied um, at when he was at Palmetto High School. And, you know, I don't agree with any kind of bullying. So I do feel sorry for him for that side of things. I do not feel sorry for the adult, feel sorry for the feel sorry for the child. But a lot of people get bullied. It does not excuse being a killer in any shape or form so anyway sorry rant (laughs) Um, much to the dismay of his father Rogers didn't show any interest in sports instead preferring to go to Girl Scout meetings with his mother Um, Rogers was also a straight-A student and a member of the French club at his school in the late 1960s Rogers um This is something I wanted to mention earlier, actually, as well. Rogers allegedly grabbed a knife from his home and stabbed his neighbour, an older woman, with it. Um, We don't really know the motive for the stabbing, but it is thought by some that the neighbour may have rejected an advance he made, um, which is strange because, you know, despite him, uh, Rogers is being a gay man, so I'm not sure about that. Um, Because of the attack, Rogers was briefly institutionalised um, but then he was released and graduated from Palmetto High School in 1968. So, you know, it's strange because he was institutionalised and not, um, you know, not put in jail. But he would have only been young, so that, that does make sense. Um, 
Anyway, Richard Rogers attended Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida. While in college, Rogers was described as a quiet learner who largely kept to himself. However, he did have a few friends and most notably was his second roommate. He and his roommate were described as being joined at the hip during the majority of their time at university. Um, although Rogers was not part of any clubs, he and some of his friends joined Circle Care, which was a Kiwanis service organisation. Um, so Ro- Rogers did graduate from Florida Southern College in 1972 and earned a bachelor's, bachelor's of Arts degree in French. So I just want to also talk about Frederick Spencer. So in 1973, when Rogers was 23, he attended the University of Maine as a graduate student. He lived with um, in a two-story house with three housemates in Arona, Maine. One of Rogers' housemates was Frederick Allen Spencer. He was 22. Um, so Rogers and Spencer were not fond of each other, but there were no instances of violence um, between them. <laughs> Prior, prior to Spencer's death. So it was 28th of April, 1973, in the afternoon. Rogers hit Spencer eight times in the back of the head with a roofing hammer. Um, luckily, after this happened, um, Spencer was actually still alive, but Rogers decided to um, asphyxiate Spencer by placing a plastic bag over his head until he died. He then waited until the evening to dispose of Spencer's body. He wrapped Spencer in his nylon Boy Scout tent, dragged the body out of his home, past the parking lot and into his car. He then drove down Route 116 in Old Town for about a minute, which brought him to the Birdstream Forest where he dumped Spencer's body. Frederick Spencer's body was found by two cyclists on the afternoon of May in nine, uh, sorry May the 1st in 1973. Um, police were able to identify his body after tracing a key found in his pants to a post box. Sorry, a post office box that he had rented. Three officers then investigated the home that Spencer had shared with his three housemates. In Roger's room, they discovered bloody fingerprints on the door, a bloody footprint on the floor, blood droplets across the walls, and the hammer as well that was used to kill Spencer. So Rogers was taken to the Arona police barracks and interrogated. During the interrogation, he did admit to killing Spencer, um, but he claimed it was in self-defence. So Richard Rogers was charged with the murder um, of Frederick Allen Spencer, but he pled not guilty. Rogers' fingerprints, height and weight were taken and he was held in the Bangor County Jail without bail for the next six months until his trial started. Um, so the trial for the murder of Frederick Allen Spencer began on the um, tw- sorry October 29th, 1973. And the uh, state was represented by Fouad Salim, the Assistant Attorney General. Testimonies began on October the 31st. And the first testimony was from a medical examiner who stated that Spencer had died from injuries to the head. And the examiner also implied that Spencer's pinky finger was broken during the struggle. Uh, on November the 1st, the trial continued and several other witnesses testified. The last person to testify was Richard Rogers. He claimed that Spencer atta- attempted to attack him with the roofing hammer, but he got hold of the hammer during the struggle and hit Spencer in the head with it eight times in self-defence. Um, 
if I'm sorry, but you know, if if somebody was attacking you and you were trying to hit them in self defense, do you think you need eight times? I think once would probably stop them attacking you. Um, eight seems a little bit excessive to me. Um, but anyway. Rogers then said that Spencer was still struggling, so he put a plastic bag over he his head until he stopped. See, I think before that stage, if it if it was self-defense, I'm sure he would have probably tried to run away. So I just think that it's... I just, yeah, the self-defense sounds like a load of rubbish to me. Um, Rogers attempted to clean the room by throwing out a blood-stained rug. He then waited until it was dark out. Put, oh, yeah, we know that he took his uh, remains. But he said he did this because I just didn't know what to do. I wanted very much to go to the police, but by then I felt it would look very suspicious. Um, yeah, well, anyway. Um, so according to observers, Rogers did an ex exceptional job testifying. He was very calm, clear and convincing. At the end of the day, RLK Payne made a request to reduce Rogers' charges to manslaughter, so the judge agreed and reduced the charge. The trial ended the next day on November the 2nd, 1973, and the jury took um, under th deliberated for under three hours and re reached a verdict of not guilty. So this is, you know, well, I think it's obviously in my opinion, the wrong the wrong choice. Maybe if he'd have been in prison for that, he wouldn't have obviously been able to kill all these other men. But that's how it is. Um nothing that we nothing that we can do, obviously now. So then I mean, I think it just makes me more angry because the fact that he'd murdered someone and then goes on to be a nurse. So yeah, after he after he was acquitted, he moved to New York, where, as we know, he did become a nurse. Um, so he went to Pierce University School of Nursing and graduated in nineteen seventy eight, um, and he became a surgical nurse, and he worked in the pediatric ward until um, his arrest in two thousand and one. On July eleventh, nineteen eighty eight, Rogers went into a bar and went to grab a drink instead of going home after work. And whilst he was in this bar, he met a man, um, which we do not have the name of, and he had a drink and invited a man back to his apartment. Now, after driving the man to his apartment, he asked him if he wanted something to drink there. The man asked for a diet soda, but Rogers decided to bring him orange juice. The man then fell unconscious. Hours later, when he woke up, his hands and ankles were bound to Roger's bed with hospital ID bracelets. As he lay naked on his back, Rogers injected a needle into him, causing him to lose consciousness again. Um, a few hours later, Rogers dressed the still unconscious man and carried him out of the apartment building. Um, so when the man woke up again, he called his friends who drove him to the local precinct and after reporting the assault, he went to the Roosevelt Hospital. <laughs> Um, where doctors ran several tests on him, they noticed the sorry they noted the bruises on a vein of his hand. They also took a rape kit, which came back as negative. Um, but Rogers was arrested for the crime in August of that year, but he was acquitted in a non-jury trial in December nineteen eighty eight. The way that he um sort of went about it in the trial was, he said that um the man had asked him for sex. 
and he'd asked Rogers to actually tie him up. But um, I'm sure that that is not the case, but that is what he decided to go with. Even though the man had actually got um, proof, you know, evidence of the... Um, of the events that he was saying, because he had the um, he had the bruises on uh, on the vein of his hand, and he had that he had that from the doctor. Even even though he had that, they largely ignored it. Richard's lawyers basically said that um, the man had dreamt the whole incident. That's that's the that's what they went for poking holes in his story um, to to disprove it. Um, and yeah, so again, he um, Rogers got away with something else so it's like the fact he got away with the first um the first murder and then he gets away with this um you know with this kidnapping which could have which could have turned into um murder is just ridiculous but that's that's that really um so just going back now uh, well forward i guess to um so yeah, going to when he did get arrested. Um, so it was May 28, 2001. Police approached Rogers at his job, telling him he was a victim of a uh, credit card fraud so that he would agree to be questioned. And when they made it to the interrogation room, detectives told him that they were actually investigating the murders he was suspected of. Rogers admitted to knowing Michael Sakara. But after figuring out that the police had linked him to the murders, Rogers requested counsel and was subsequently arrested. And then um, I've obviously mentioned what they found when they searched his home earlier. Um, so going on to the trial. So Roger's trial began on October 26, 2005. He was offered a plea deal, can't talk, <laughs> during jury selection, which stated that if he pled guilty to manslaughter in both cases, he would receive two 32-year sentences with the possibility of parole after 15 years. Additionally, if he pled guilty to the third degree murder in the death of Peter Anderson, um, we would receive a total of 10 to 20 years in prison. Uh, Roger did say he would take this into consideration, but declined the deal. Several witnesses, such as those who discovered the remains of the victims, the detectives who invested, investigated the case, and fingerprints, Analysts testified at the trial. However, Richard Rogers himself did not testify and remained quiet throughout his legal proceedings. Um, so although Rogers was never charged in the killings of um, Peter Anderson and Michael Sakara, their cases were allowed to be discussed at the trial due to the similarities with other murders. However, the killings of Frederick Spencer and John Piero and the 1988 assault were not allowed to be mentioned. Interesting. Um, so in November 2005, the jury, after deliberating for three hours and 45 minutes, found Richard Rogers guilty on all charges. Um, Re Rogers reportedly showed no reaction to the verdict um, and continued staring at the front of the courtroom. So he's currently serving two consecutive life sentences for the two murders at New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, however, to this day, he actually does maintain his innocence. So... That's um, that's interesting. Um, but that is the tale of the last call killer. Um, so thank you for sticking with me for my first episode. I hope it wasn't too. Um, I think it was a little bit um over the place, but I'll get there. It's the first one, so hopefully my next one will be um better. <laughs> um, but maybe you enjoyed it, so I hope you did. 
and if you can follow me and share that would be great and i'll see you next time thanks guys bye